Mirror exists to provide a refuge for women who have been sex trafficked or sexually exploited. We represent a part of the movement that is aftercare services. So a woman who comes out of that experience and is needing some support so she can establish her life for long-term success. The vision for Amira is to reach as many women as possible. And we want to multiply, we want to grow, we want to create more opportunities for women to come, to find hope, to find a new life. Every sex trafficking victim has such a battle, and it clearly takes a village. Amira is that village to give these women a shot. So if you've never heard of Amira, we are uh, a, a trauma-informed aftercare service provider for survivors of trafficking. We exist to provide a refuge for women who are seeking to break free from exploitation and heal in community on their journeys towards lasting hope. And, uh, and so we're talking about the issue of trafficking today. So it is a little bit heavy of a topic, uh, but with your permission, we'll dive into that a little bit because my expectation is that we'll leave this place, even though we're looking into some of the most horrific things that we can imagine, that we'll leave here feeling hopeful and equipped to move with God, uh, to, uh, who is active in this world, to redeem and restore and make new. Uh, so with that, let's go to the scriptures. If you have your Bible, please open up to Psalm chapter 124. We're going to read it. I'll pray and then we'll dive into the message together this morning. The Psalm 124 says this. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging, unrelenting waters. But blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to tune our hearts, to sing your praise. Lord, would you quicken our minds to understand what you're calling us to? Would you enliven our ears so that we might hear your voice? Thank you that you speak to us, God, through your word. We pray that you would speak to us even now, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, around this time last year, I set out to attempt to climb 25 4,000-plus-foot mountains in five days. 25 mountains in five days. And spoiler, we didn't make it. That is as insane as it sounds, right? It was uh, literally day two of climbing when one of the other two people that were there with me came up and he was like, my muscles are shredded, my feet are bleeding. Um, I've fallen a couple times. This isn't safe. You guys are crazy. And he just hiked out of there, which was concerning because he planned the trip and um, <laughs> left me and my youngest brother, John, there to wonder, like, what are we going to do? Because uh, he had the maps. And, uh, but we looked at each other, we were like, are your feet bleeding? No, my feet are fine. Okay, let's, let's continue. Let's do as much as we can. Because we didn't set out for vacation. 
We weren't there to see the sights. We set out as a part of a movement to call attention to this reality that right now there are millions of people around the world who are bought and sold against their will. It's a movement that we call Move for Amira. It's an opportunity to move in solidarity with survivors of trafficking because the reality is for the even 1% that have an opportunity to escape or for whom law enforcement intervenes, that is just the beginning of an incredibly difficult process of recovery that requires enormous grit. It's like attempting to swim the English Channel or run a marathon or climb 25 mountains in five days. It takes courage and resiliency. So we just looked at each other and we said, let's set our faces like stone towards that goal. And with as much strength as we have in our legs and as many days as we have in front of us, we will complete this goal by God's grace. And by God's grace, there was lightning above the ridgeline for a couple of days. And uh, I think that was God saying, just cool it, take it easy. Uh, you're trying to do too much. So, but we were able to climb for three days and we ended up uh, hitting 16 mountains. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And all along the way, we were reading these Psalms of Ascent, one of which I read to you this morning in Psalm 124. I felt appropriate as we were ascending these mountains, we were reading these Psalms of Ascent that the Old Testament people of God would read year after year as they journeyed towards Jerusalem and they ascended the hill into the city to worship God there. They would sing them along the way. And it was amazing for us as we sang these songs sort of in motion with a mission on purpose, how they would lodge themselves deeply into our hearts. If you've ever curated a playlist for a road trip, you know that certain songs can take you back to certain moments in history. Uh, so there are certain songs that will take me right to the West Texas highways in Big Bend National Park or to the bridge, uh, or the Charles Bridge in um, uh, uh, the Czech Republic or on the journey from Pokhara to Kathmandu, Nepal. Certain songs can come to define certain moments and certain moments can come to define who we are. And that was the idea behind these Psalms of Ascent that as you read them year after year, this sort of Old Testament road trip playlist, that the realities would land in them such that they would come to define not only how they viewed God, but how they viewed themselves. That if this is true of God, this is meant to be true of me. And it's a song about the rescuing, intervening nature of God that he does not stand aloof from our suffering, but he enters in, he gets his hands dirty, he condescends to lift us up out of the ash heap. And they would have understood that if this is true of the character of the king, then this is true of the character of the citizens of the kingdom. This is who we are. This is what we're known for. Because we all have something that we're known for, right? Every one of us has something that we're known for. This works on a social level, uh, as seen by like the show Friends, right, where Joey is the hungry one and Chandler is the funny one and Ross is the one that gets divorces, right? They all have something that they're known for. This works for all of us. When your name comes up in conversation or you enter into someone's mind, there's something that you're known for, right? Uh, for me, unfortunately, socially, one of the things that I'm known for is saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Uh, I'm uh, sort of known for putting my foot in my mouth, if you will. And uh, so there are like a list of stories, a canon of stories that friends will not let me forget of moments that I've inadvertently said the wrong thing at the wrong time. Uh, the worst of them was when I was a uh, 23, 24 year old, just starting grad school in Boston. And I had just come out of a, a 
on and off again sort of relationship. And when I moved from Texas to Boston, we didn't quite put the proper boundary markers on the end of that relationship, which for those of you in the dating pool would not recommend. And uh, so we're still sort of talking and uh, her birthday rolls around. And I thought, well, it would be strange to not say something on her birthday, like we've been communicating, but I don't wanna be confusing, so I'll just send something right down the middle, platonic, not flirtatious. So I just sent the text, 25 and still alive, exclamation mark. Only I didn't recognize that I had mistyped the word alive, and my phone was trying to be helpful, so it auto-corrected whatever I typed. And so the text that she received was 25 and still alone. on her birthday, right? And that provided all the closure that we needed. That was it, relationship done. And uh, that was the wrong thing at the wrong time, right? Um, and for me, unfortunately, that's something that just keeps following me. I think, I don't know, the Lord's just providing humility. I don't know what it is, but that's one of the things that I'm known for. We all have something that we're known for. That's true of each of us. When your name comes up or your, your face pops into someone's head, uh, and that's true spiritually. We all have something that we're known for. So my question for us this morning is, as the people of God, as followers of Jesus, what are we known for? When our name pops up in conversation or someone thinks of the church, the followers of Jesus, what are we known for? And that answer may vary depending on who's thinking about us or where we pop up in conversation, but the question is more, what are we meant to be known for as the people of Jesus? Who are we meant to be for the world? And um, I think the Psalms of Ascent have something to teach us because the reality is how you answer that question, who am I, who am I meant to be for the world? Uh, it matters tremendously. So I read a book at the beginning of this year in a New Year's resolution type motivation called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And he's an expert at small systematic changes that will lead to long-term success. It's a great book, I recommend it. But he said something really interesting. He said, we're gonna talk about goals and then we're gonna talk a lot about systems to get to those goals. But more important than either of those are your beliefs, your beliefs, which I thought was interesting because he's, he's not a believer, he's not a person of faith, but he said, more important than your goals and your systems are your beliefs. And uh, he said, let me give you an example. If you get to a place where you decide, I want to um, uh, get healthy, I I've come to a place where my heart isn't healthy, I'm at risk, I just don't feel well, I wanna exercise and I wanna see results. He said, you can set up really good goals, and you should, and you can have really good systems to get to those goals, but if when you look in the mirror, you think, I'm a failure, or you hear a voice that says, you're disgusting, you will trend towards your ultimate beliefs about who you think that you are in your deepest heart. Your goals will sound to your soul like fiction and your systems will collapse under the weight of your self-loathing. He says, so more important than your goals and more important than your systems to get to those goals are what you ultimately believe to be true about the world and about yourself. And I thought that was so fascinating because as a, someone who's not a person of faith, he's not trying to sneak a belief system under the table. He's just looking at the data and he's saying, what you believe really matters. And so what do you believe to be true about yourself and about us as the people of Jesus? See, we see this reality play out all the time in the line of work that I do with anti-trafficking. That women come to us, and not every time, but it's not uncommon that a woman will come to us and she will have a tattoo placed somewhere forcibly on her body because traffickers will sort of place this tattoo like you would, um, 
like he'd brand cattle. It's a horribly dehumanizing practice. We work at the Department of Children and Families in Connecticut, in this state, and they've said that they've had women come to them with dollar signs tattooed on their face so that every time they look in the mirror, they just see, I'm a way to make him money. There was a trafficker in Bridgeport that would tattoo literal barcodes on his victims to remind them, you're property. And the idea is this. If I can control your identity, I can control your life. If I can distort who you think you are at the deepest heart level, I can control the outcomes of your life. And that's what they come to us with. And so it's no mistake that the name Amira means princess. It means daughter of the king. And the idea is that when she comes to us, she would go from seeing herself as who they said they were to someone whose identity is defined by her proximity to King Jesus. That you have dignity because you were made in his image. Because he stepped towards you in love, you are now a mirror. You're loved. You have agency. You have dignity. And when they get that, when they understand this is who I am at the deepest heart level, that changes everything. That becomes the key chemical ingredient to a transformed life. And David understood this. King David, who penned Psalm 124, understood this well, and so he would write a song about it. Who are we as the people of God? He would say, we're the rescued ones. And this song, I love it, it's a call and response psalm. It was, he says, let, uh, if the Lord had not been on our side, then he pauses, and he says, let Israel now say, if the Lord had not been on our side. It was like the Old Testament's way of saying, everybody, say it with me. If the Lord had not been on our side, we would have been in trouble. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Our help is in the name of the Lord. He has come for us. He has rescued us. This is who we are. And the reality that I want us to understand this morning is God's love comes to us and transforms us and then sends us out to be a transformative agent in the world. God's love comes to you, but it doesn't stop with you. You're meant to get caught up in this river of redemption, to move with him as he moves on this planet. Because here's what's so fascinating about this psalm of ascent. They would sing this in their pilgrimage towards Jerusalem. So they're singing this song about the rescuing, intervening nature of God, while literally in motion, right? They're moving. And there's a truth that I want us to grab from that this morning, and it's this, that true worship often comes in motion, right? True worship involves action. You see this in the writings of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul would say it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He would say, therefore, I urge you, I'm pleading with you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And so what do we see from that? Yes, worship is singing. Yes, worship is crying out with our hearts to the Lord. God is not interested in actions that are divorced from the deepest and truest places of our hearts. But worship is a song, and it's more than a song. Worship involves action. He says, in view of God's mercy. What's he referring to? This reality that God himself, the son of God, would take on human flesh, would become a man, and then would march towards a literal physical cross to lay himself down so that sin could be moved out of the way and sinners could be reconciled to his savior. He says, that's not just a spiritual concept. That happened in a physical world. And he says, in view of God's mercy, 
offer your own bodies as a living sacrifice. I want you to put skin in the game, get involved because God's active and he's inviting you to come with him. Come move with me as I move on this planet. And then worship involves empathy. True worship involves action and true worship involves empathy. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, verse three, he says, remember those who are in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. He says, I want you to so identify with the needs of the world around you that you would see their story as your story because true worship involves action and true worship involves empathy. David, King David, who penned this psalm, would have understood this. Why? Because he had been rescued out of the mouth of the lion from the sword of Goliath simply by virtue of being a member of the nation of Israel because what was Israel but a nation of slaves who God rescued with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm out of the land of Egypt. That's who he is. And David's trying to help us understand this isn't just one man's story or one moment in history. This is our story. This is our moment in history. This is who we are. We're the rescued ones. We're the redeemed ones. We're the ones that God has called to move with him in love towards a broken and hurting world. And that is really good news because the world is broken. Make no mistake. David says in this Psalm six times, I don't know if you caught it, but in Psalm 124, he says, we would have been attacked, swallowed alive, objects of anger, swept away in raging, unrelenting waters, prey in the teeth of a predator. We would have been like a bird trapped in a cage. He says, this world is broken. It's, it's hurting. It's true that we live in the most affluent and safest nation in human history. And yet even for those members of the population for whom that's totally true, there's no fear of want, there's no fear of physical violence, experts are at a loss to explain the rise of assorted pathologies, of depression, of loneliness, of anxiety. They can't understand why suicide rates have skyrocketed in the way that they have in the last couple of decades, um, that we live in a broken world. And yet for David, he would have understood that these aren't just internal issues, though they are that, because he was a victim of actual attempted violence. These weren't just metaphors and these weren't just an eternal, internal issues. Um, right now, there are people all over the globe who are victims of violent oppression. And right now, there are millions of people around the world and in the US who are victims of human trafficking. The International Labor Organization estimates that there are 40 million people being bought and sold against their will in the world right now. That's a massive number, hard to even comprehend. Uh, they estimate that it's $150 billion a year enterprise, fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world at $150 billion annually. I looked it up to see how much that was. That same year that that statistic came out, that was more than Disney. You think about all that they do. Netflix, Starbucks, and Coca-Cola made combined that same year. It is a massive global problem, but it's not just happening globally. It's not just happening sort of over there somewhere, overseas. It's actually happening here locally. I believe we have a map. This is operated by um, Polaris. It's the National Human Trafficking Hotline. They work in conjunction with federal and local law enforcement, and the heat zones that you're seeing represent actual calls reporting trafficking and then having them confirmed 
by law enforcement in the US. Now, I expected to see a couple of those dots, like near Miami or Houston or Southern California. What I was not prepared for was the hottest, most concentrated zone on the map is right where we're sitting, um, in the Northeast Corridor. This is something that affects us here. And this is where we're gonna dive in just a little bit, and I just ask for you to hang with me. The reality is I get to bounce around and preach on God's heart for this all over New England. And it's not every time, but it's not uncommon that I'll give a message like this and someone will come up to me after the service. And this happened uh, in Connecticut just up the road where a young woman in her mid to late 20s came up and said, that was my story. I was trafficked as a New Englander, as a teenager. And by God's grace, I made it out alive, but my best friend didn't. And I think about her every day. That was just up the road. Or I was in Massachusetts not too long after, and a woman came up and didn't have the words. She just had tears in her eyes, and she scribbled on the corner of our sign-up sheet, my baby girl was trafficked, and she's no longer with us. Can someone from your organization call me? That was in Massachusetts. So the reality is these aren't just statistics, and these aren't just stories. Chances are this is happening in our neighborhoods. The Department of Children and Families in this state have said there have been confirmed cases of trafficking in every single county in this state, every county. So it doesn't just affect the big cities. It's not just between Boston and New York, though it is primarily there. It's everywhere. This is a horrific reality that's happening all around us, and yet we are not without hope. Why? Because Psalm 124 is true. God rescues he intervenes. He moves towards us in love. Psalm 12, 5 is true because the poor are plundered and the needy groan. I will now arise, says the Lord, and I will place them in the safety for which they long. And at a mirror, we simply see ourselves as the people of God who will rise with God to place these precious women in the safety that they long for because God's on the move. True worship involves action. Why? Because ultimately worship is about proximity to the king. And our king is active. He is moving towards the poor, the needy, the forgotten, the exploited, the trafficked in love. And he's saying, come run with me. Come be a part of what I'm doing. And there's no greater invitation in life than that. And so as Christians, as the people of Jesus, who are we meant to be in this world? What are we known for? I think we're meant to be like a young Pino Leila. I'm not sure if any of you read the book Beneath the Scarlet Sky. It was one of the books that I was obsessed with in 2021. Uh, not necessarily because of the writing. Actually, that sort of bothered me, and I put it down. But the story was so good that I came back to it. And uh, it's a true story of a, a young Italian man who lived as a 17-year-old during the latter years of World War II. And as war began to ravage his uh, hometown of Milan, Italy, his parents sent him out to Casa Alpina, the house in the mountains. It was a Catholic retreat center that he grew up going to as a young boy. And uh, as a 17-year-old, he arrives at Casa Alpina, and one of the priests, Father Ray, starts sending him on these uh, hikes early in the morning, waking him up at 3 and 4 a.m., and having him perfect these routes through the Italian Alps, through the mountains, and doesn't tell him why. Feeds him a lot of pasta, which you would expect in Italy, and protein so that he gets strong so he can complete these routes. And then about 50 pages into the book, he pulls him into a chapel, just the two of them, and he he sits him down and he says, I want you to know why I've been sending you through the mountains. He said, there's a group called the SS, Nazi enforcers, and they've got a list, all of whom are, most of whom are people of Jewish descent, 
and they're going through and they're finding all the people on the list. And young Pino asks, what will they, what will they do when they find them? And he says, they're murdering them on the spot. And the author who spent countless hours interviewing the real Pino Leila said, it was in that mind that the concept of evil, which had never entered the most remote or troubled parts of his young mind, came flooding in. And he verbalized it, he said, that's evil. And he says, it is. And yet, God's not inactive, and neither are we. This place has become a safe home, a safe harbor. We've been hiding them here, and yet they can't stay here. Uh, because eventually they'll come looking for him. So we need someone to lead them through the mountains into Switzerland and into freedom. And he says, I want you to do it. And he says, but I need you to know, if you say yes, you become a living sacrifice. If they catch you, they will shoot you on the spot. You're committing an act of treason. I want you to go in eyes wide open. So you say yes or you say no, but I want you to know what you're getting into. It says he thought about it, and then strength and emotion filled his soul in a way that he'd never felt before. And he looks him in the eye and he says, I will, I'll lead them. And then he begins leading them through the mountains to freedom. Uh, now, generally in my marriage, I'm the early to bed and my wife is the night owl. But when I was reading this book, it was flipped. It would be like one or two in the morning and my wife would be like, can we please go to bed now? And I'd be like, not now, babe. He just, he's got a woman on top of the mountain and we just found out she's pregnant. He's gonna have to ski with her down the mountain on his back. Like, I can't leave him now. And... Uh, I just think that's such a beautiful picture of who we're meant to be as Christians. We don't rescue anybody. Salvation is in the hands of the Lord, right? But we can be a guide. We can show you the way that he showed to us through the person of Jesus, who is the gateway to freedom, to life, to eternal hope and peace. And that's a beautiful picture of who we are as a mirror, that we don't rescue anybody, but we can be a guide. We can take you by the hand and we can show you a way of life. We can show you a God who would come to save you, to set you free, and to give you a new start and a new hope. And so who are we as the people of God? What are we meant to be known for? I think God is calling us to risk the cold danger of the mountain of mission. That he's saying, come run with me. And as we follow our king lockstep up the mountain, we'll feel some strength return to our legs, metaphorically speaking. As we breathe the cool mountain air, we'll feel our heads begin to clear that this is who I am. This is who I was always meant to be as we walk lockstep with our king. Is it easy to climb the mountain? It's not, but it's beautiful and it's worth it. And this is what God's calling us to. This is our true, proper worship. And so to close, um, last year after climbing those mountains, I was volunteering uh, in one of our safe homes with the women and um, we were sitting around a dinner table. There were nine of us, a couple of Mira staff, a couple of volunteers and survivors at the table. Uh, we've gotten to know the women. We'd become friends with them. And that night we were talking about nothing in particular of importance. The topic of conversation was gaining weight when you get married. And so I had been fairly recently married. And so I offered to the table, well, I gained 11 pounds in my first three weeks of marriage, which felt impressive, <laughs> worth mentioning. And uh, I said, I know it may not look it now. I just finished a long hike and lost a ton of weight. And one of the survivors who we've become friends with said, wait, you how, far did you, how long was this hike? She was like, you must have climbed a mountain if you lost weight on a hike. And I said, actually, I did. I climbed several. I climbed 16. And at this point, she was just sort of laughing at me like, you're so dumb. Like, why would you do that to yourself? And, uh, and I said, well, actually, it was for you guys. It was for Amira. It was to call attention to your courage and to raise money to support you in your recovery journey. And in a moment where it was super not normal to show emotion, 
she, right there at the dinner table, just started crying. And she almost looked upset, like it was a, an affront to her basic belief, like what she believed about herself. And she said, you did that for me? You did that for us? And I said, yeah, I did. And actually, we got to pray for you by name at the top of one of the mountains. And at that, she choked back tears and almost had to get up from the table. Not too long later, she came and found my wife and I, and she just said, hey, I just want you to know my whole life I've been taken from, I've been abused. It's hard for me to think of anything that anyone has ever done kind for me, much less climb 16 mountains. And um, not too long later, I was at the home doing some volunteer kind of maintenance work with some other folks. And um, one of the younger survivors who was in the room with us came up and she said, I'm so glad you're here. This woman who we'll call Lisa is gonna be so happy to see you. She said she had a really hard day. She was just sitting outside, kind of crying under the weight of it all. But as like a mantra, she was just repeating to herself, someone climbed mountains for me. Someone climbed mountains for me. And about six months later, she told my wife and I, I just need you to know that changed the way that I look at myself forever. I'm worth fighting for. I have dignity. I have value. And um, not too long after, she was offered a full-time job, uh, which for her had her euphoric. Like she was almost having like a manic episode. She was so thrilled that she got offered a full-time job. She came almost dancing and spinning into the room. She sat down at a desk and it was like she forgot the rest of us were there and she just sort of said quietly to herself, could this be me? Could I be this girl? Is this always who I was supposed to be? And then she just broke down crying. And then she said, epiphany. I just had an epiphany. And then she said, 16 mountains? I just had an epiphany. And... Uh, I'm not as emotionally developed as my wife, so I was a little comfortable with that level of emotion. Uh, my sweet wife got up and gave her a hug, cried with her, prayed with her, and from the safety of my distance, I just asked, uh, Lisa, what was your epiphany? Like, what did you realize? And she said, it's Christ. He loves me, and he's gonna take care of me, and I'm gonna be okay. And I love that story because it's such a beautiful picture of what happens when we take God up on the invitation to believe in hope and to feel equipped to run with him towards the lost, the broken, and the hurting. We become, in a really small way, all of us collectively, a little picture of Jesus. That he came and he didn't just ascend some mountains in the northeast of the United States, but that he ascended the hill to Jerusalem, walked past the city gates, and then walked up that hill to Calvary where he bled and died for you and for me. And when we get that, that he came for no other reason than simply he loved us. And it is his nature to redeem and to intervene. That changes everything. And when we move with him, when we offer our bodies, when we step towards the world in love, we become a picture, a live action display of God's grand drama of redemption. And we get to be a picture of Christ to the world. And that can change a life. And that can change the planet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for an opportunity to just think a little bit about who you are. Lord, I am just grateful that we get to be a part of what you're doing. Thank you for your rescuing, redeeming activity in this world. Lord, I pray that um, if there's anyone in this room that always thought Christianity was like approximating a life to a moral code or being a good person, that you would help them to see this morning, that know that the story of Christianity is there's a God in heaven who loved us so much 
that he would send his son to rescue and to redeem us from our sin, from our destination, to give us a new name, a new story, and a new life. And then, Lord, for those of us that have been walking with you and then just have had this sense this morning that you're calling me to, to move towards the lost, towards the broken, towards the hurting, that I want to be a part, God, of what you're doing in the world. I pray that you would give each of us a vision. What might it look like for me to offer my body as a living sacrifice, to step into the game and to be a part of what you're doing in the world? Because, God, we know that when we walk lockstep with you, there's no greater joy and there's no better way to live. So we love you, Lord. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.